Hi everyone and welcome to the second part of our conversation series with Dr. Jerry Haas. I'm Nidhi and I'm a research aide here at the Division of Nutritional Sciences. Together with Elizabeth, a PhD candidate in the division, we will continue with our conversation with Dr. Haas and hear more about his work in international nutrition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Haas. And so going back to the train of thought about fieldwork, why don't you tell us more about how you choose a field site and determine the type of research that you want to conduct there? As academics, we generally don't choose a site before we choose a problem. And uh, we're trained to solve problems. And then the question is, where? what is the best setting to solve the problems that you're trying to address from a scientific or public health point of view? So that's the first question. Then, then where do you go depends on well, a lot of other factors. I mean, obviously, you find a place where the problem exists and, and is amenable to study. But then there are a lot of extra things that you throw in there. I mean, some of them uh, obviously is your own personal experience working in those areas. Uh, language becomes a very important component of that. And then the characteristics of people who go into this field, their, their own uh, cultural sensitivity, understanding uh, what drives them in terms of the problems that they're trying to solve and or do they have a larger audience and just the population that they're studying. I think those are the factors, the questions you ask first, and then you choose a research site or the setting to address those questions. And then there are things like, you know, there are personal issues as well. Language is one, but I, I've been very fortunate in my career to have a family that's been very supportive of my going into the field, but I'm, not, I'm sure that not everybody has that luxury and they have to think about their own personal situation as well. Personal safety is important, obviously, but it's, uh, it's not an easy decision to make uh, once you've decided where you want to go. Is, are you equipped to do the work, or to go there and be prepared to, to make a contribution? Thank you so much. And what has been your favorite part about visiting the field sites? Oh, gosh. I think when I was growing up, as I said, I grew up in this little rural community in Southern Pennsylvania, a farming community. Didn't get out very much, but I always was curious. I always wanted to know what was out there beyond this little, you know, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And so I read a lot and I talked to people who had traveled. And I found that whenever I traveled, it's just a novelty of new places and trying to understand what's the dynamic. How does this place exist in, in, the, in the bigger world or how do they make their own world more functional? So whenever I went somewhere else, I was always intrigued with, I guess back to my anthropology background, how people adapted, how, how they managed to cope in that situation and what were the limitations of their ability to cope. So that was always a curiosity I had when I went into, not just the field work that I was doing, but when I was visiting other places. Um, I just love meeting other people from different settings and different situations. If I'm fortunate enough to speak the language, I would, uh, could interact with them more. Many times I'm not, and I have to do it through you know, an intermediary of some sort. Uh, then learning about the history and the culture of those places that I've worked and were visited were always something that, that still to this day is, is something that I, I find fascinating when I travel. 
Well, actually going a little bit further into that, I think as trainees in international nutrition and, and also for the broader PIN podcast audience, we would like to get a little bit closer on your experience in the in field work and maybe hear a couple of anecdotes of something fun or scary uh, that you went through when you went out there. Well, after 40, 40 years of doing field work, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> I've got lots of lots of interesting experiences and some of them are funny, some of them are, are unfortunately were tragic. I, I always, you know, when I talk to my own students or spoke with my own students about this and, and trying to impress upon them the fact that you have to be adaptable, I, I go back to my early days of working in Bolivia in mid-1970s. And Bolivia was not a politically stable place at that time, but they were not uh, unwelcoming from the point of view of scientists. Uh, uh, frankly, I had to go under a different cover than anthropology for a lot of that because there was some bias against anthropologists, but nutritionists or nutritional scientists were welcome. But once I arrived there, I realized that Bolivia during the 19, late 1970s was averaging about one revolution every six months. Political turnover period is not very easy to deal with, but one every six months is, I can't tell you how many times we modified our research agenda to accommodate the, uh, the revolutions that took place. And I think the, the, uh, the one, uh, one or two anecdotes I have are, are related to work in Bolivia. One of them is, is more the, you know, how do you get a research project going when you anticipate there might be some political turnover? Well, by, you can imagine if there a revolution every six months, Bolivians actually learn how to deal with this pretty well. And I had gone back often enough that I learned how the Bolivians dealt with it. But then in 1980, we, I had a, an NSF grant with a colleague from University of Massachusetts, Brooke Thomas, that was, uh, was a pretty big project. And we had put together a team of 14 people to go into Bolivia to work on different aspects of how the rural population was adapting to environmental change while in the face of, of infectious disease and malnutrition and, and hypoxia. When we uh, got there and I went through all the process of working with the Ministry of Agriculture and our high altitude co collaborators at High Altitude Institute in, in La Paz, and everything was set up the day we were supposed to go out into the field to do the first surveillance of the communities, there was a revolution. And this was not your typical revolution, Bolivian revolution, which were pretty peaceful in the past. I mean, usually, you know, one general took over for an admiral who then took over for another general. And, and sometimes they had all three of them uh, running uh, the government. But in this case, this was a, a general who was a pretty nasty guy. And he was very much involved in the drug trafficking of, that was well known in Bolivia at the time. And everything shut down. I mean, we were in La Paz and we had 14 people uh, living in three different places, in three different apartments across the city. And we couldn't get out of the city to go to the field site. Not that we necessarily wanted to because we weren't sure what the safety was there. And we just said, well, we'll just wait this out. These things usually resolve themselves in a week or two. Well, we waited and we waited and it became pretty clear after about two weeks, it was not going to resolve itself. So I had to think what to do with 14 investigators, or in some cases, their families, to keep them occupied. So uh, 
having worked at high altitude in, in uh, Bolivia and Peru for, at this point, about uh, 10 or 11 years, there are a lot of little questions, little research questions that were nagging me that never got answered. So we ended up dividing up all these little questions into to among all these investigators. And I said, come up with a research design to look at this, but be prepared to do it in about two to three weeks and prepared to be prepared to ditch it if we can actually get back in the field to do the project we want to. Well, we never got into the field to do the project we wanted to. That revolution lasted a lot longer, but all these little projects became one of the most productive field seasons I ever had in terms of publication. Everybody had a little project, they wrote it up, and the experience for the students was, I think, pretty good. I was still rather disappointed we couldn't do the project we wanted to. But fortunately for NSF, they knew that if you fund an anthropologist, things may not get done the way they're supposed to be proposed. So NSF didn't was not as angry as, as maybe uh, some of my collaborators were. So that's one, one anecdote that was, uh, tells a story about how to prepare for field work. In this case, it was a rather extreme situation where we ended up not being able to do the work at all, but finding other things to keep people busy and ended up being productive in the long run. Uh, I think another challenge, an anecdote around a challenge, again, it goes back to the days working in Bolivia, was uh, Bolivia did not have uh, very much in the way of research facilities. They had one high altitude research institute in La Paz, which, had, which was basically focused on physiology, but they didn't have much other infrastructure. And when I decided to do my research in Bolivia, I recognized this, but uh, I needed to have a laboratory, access to a laboratory to, to analyze blood samples and other samples. Uh, in this case, remember I was working with pregnant women at the time. And one of the things we were interested in is, is uh, how they adapted to the, the stresses of pregnancy at high altitude and hypoxia. So I, I thought, well, the placenta is a very, very important organ in the transport of oxygen from the mother where it's probably in limited uh, concentration because of a the environment to the fetus that needed it for development. Well, that meant that we had to collect placentas. And a number of my graduate students uh, remember our efforts to collect placentas in, in delivery rooms and so on. But setting up a laboratory to do the blood analysis and then to do the placental analysis, I had to inspect the placenta, photograph it, take samples from it, uh, put them in formalin and so on to ship them back to the US. And, uh, I had to do that in a, I found a laboratory. And one laboratory working in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, it didn't exist. So I set up a laboratory in our house that we had rented in the spare bathroom. And uh, I still have pictures of this, of working, uh, dissecting a placenta over the bidet with my, at that time, my four-year-old son, who was very curious and a budding scientist. With his, I had my notebook, my, my, my placenta notebook, where I draw the picture of placenta, marked where all the infarcts were and the insertions and so on. And he had his own placenta notebook that he would take notes, a four-year-old taking notes of his dad cutting up placentas over a bidet in the spare bathroom. So again, it's being adaptable. You had to find a place to work to do the, to do the research. But then you often had uh, you know, extra helping hands that not everybody has the pleasure of working with. So that was yet another. And then, of course, other placenta stories. They're trying to get placenta through 
through the customs in Miami was, was itself an, an adventure. So those are some of the interesting anecdotes. And we've had more since uh, in other places that it, they seem to, I keep going back to those early experiences uh, in Bolivia. Yeah, I think we can get a, a podcast entirely about uh, stories from the field, including a placenta chapter, because <laughs> yeah. I am curious to know about costumes and placenta and how that went. Um, and also, well, quick question, would you, were you able ever to actually do the study you were planning to do when the revolution was uh, happening in Bolivia? No, we weren't. We, one of the things we wanted to look at was how did malnutrition, infection, and the, and the seasonal variation and exposure to uh, food insecurity affect the, the livelihoods of people in the, in the highlands. And uh, particularly, I was interested in how it affected their, their productivity in a rural environment where they basically produce their own food. We never were able to do that. My collaborator went off and he had other interests that he pursued. And this was a major, a major undertaking. I did follow up on that in other ways. In fact, it ended up being a kind of a theme that ran through a lot of my subsequent research, where I was looking at functional consequences of iron deficiency. And those functional consequences I can measure in the laboratory, which I did right on through even the studies we were doing with biofortified crops, where we had an opportunity with their uh, randomized control trials to look at primary outcomes being iron status in this case, and we fed biofortified crops, but secondary outcomes being physical work capacity and cognitive function, which I saw as kind of the groundwork determinants of productivity. So productivity always kind of stood out as a motivating factor to look at some of these laboratory expressions of productivity, such as physical work capacity, physical activity, cognitive function, and so on. So I continue to work on those problems, but not in the context we originally proposed in Bolivia. Okay, thank you so much for sharing all this, Dr. Haas. So I guess for the last section of our conversation or the podcast, we would want to go back to your days as a graduate student or a trainee. And uh, so what are some valuable lessons that you learned from your educational or professional training that you carried on as a professor or an anthropologist in nutrition? Wow. Well, now we've got to go back to reviving ancient history again. It's, uh, I think the, the things I learned early on that I tried to instill in my own students, the first was if you're going to graduate school and you're going there, especially if you're doing a PhD, you're going there to become a better scientist. And basically we're asking questions that require a methodology that's rooted in the scientific method. And uh, I think first and foremost, you need to be well-grounded in the basis of the scientific method for your particular discipline or questions that you're asking. I also learned from the, right from graduate school, uh, it was a unique program, as I mentioned, at Penn State, because it was itself multidisciplinary, even though you think, well, it's just an anthropology department. But we had people who were interested in physiology, in infectious disease, in dietary methodology, and agriculture, all working as a team. And I saw that as one of the advantages of moving to Cornell in 1975 was that was the philosophy they were instilling in, in this new division of nutritional sciences. I think graduate students have to recognize that they're not working in isolation, that their problem might seem like it's the only problem in the world because they're working on it, 
but there are, you still need help to do that. And you, you should search out for good collaborators. And a lot of those collaborators came in gra as graduate students. I mean, my, my graduate student cohort was a really close-knit group of people. And I would like to instill, hope that I instill that in the research groups and that I've had in subsequent years. And for me, uh, it was very important to have a mentor, a mentor that wasn't just your thesis advisor, but uh, that person did a lot more for you. They, I mean, your, your questions that are going to come up aren't just going to be related to your thesis, they're related to a lot of other things that will determine your career trajectory some cases, even your personal living situation, but you have to have a mentor who they can't answer the questions. They, they're sympathetic enough to be able to help you find the answer somewhere else. So I think the mentor is really important. And those mentors are, uh, you know, you don't have to have one. In fact, I would hope that you could search out several people that would be able to provide you that that help. And it's not just through graduate school, it's on and afterwards. I mean, my, my most important mentor at in my life, I think, was Jean-Pierre Hoppe. And uh, it wasn't until I was already the Cornell faculty that I joined up with Jean-Pierre. And uh, I think that's another important thing I learned from my early stages of, of training was the, uh, the collaboration, multidisciplinarity of, it, of the work, and having a good mentor. Now I would like to ask you a little bit of a follow-up and, and maybe pick up also from what you were uh, talking before about your experience in Bolivia, in terms of how nutrition is related to many other things, uh, political issues, economics, society, etc. And so given how things can get so difficult internationally and locally, and it, the complexity seems to be ever increasing, how do you keep motivated to, to continue the work in international nutrition? And what has been your biggest motivator? Well, I think the, the motivation comes from the from the clear fact that we don't have the, all the answers. I mean, the problems are so much bigger than the answers that we currently have to address them. And uh, so we're always trying to solve a problem, whether it's local or national or international. When you still have more than half the world is living under some limitations of food security, and all the implications of that from the point of view of poverty, disease risks, uh, general health conditions, all of which have the potential, you would hope, to be improved at some point. And just trying to understand that there are solutions to these problems out there. And there may not be solutions global. There are going to be solutions that are initially addressed locally, and then hopefully be applicable in a broader setting. So that's what motivated me, was knowing that there are problems out there that need to be solved. And if I can contribute in some little way with my knowledge and, and opportunities that uh, afford me through working at a place like Cornell and, and plugged into a larger international network, then uh, I would keep uh, continue to do that work to help make a contribution somewhere along the way. Uh, and you know, different disciplines can contribute in different ways. And my my focus has always been more local. Uh, that's why I love field work so much. Is I can get out into the field where people actually live and experience the environmental limitations that they have. But others uh, are trying to piece this together from many many different localities, and in some cases, looking at it as a global perspective. And that's fine too. 
we need all of that. But uh, it's uh, recognizing that there are an abundance of problems related to nutrition and health that still need to be solved. And uh, as long as the problem is as big as it is, unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of work for a lot of people who are trying to solve that. Thank you, Dr. Haas. I think that's a very important message. Among trainees, among PhD students, we usually talk about motivation. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a common topic. So thank you so much for that. And, and I guess one, my last question will be, is there any advice uh, you carry through your uh, career? Well, some of it I've already spoken to, and it's one way or another. I mean, the, the value of my training in a program that emphasized the quality of science in it and in, in implementing it in under not always ideal situations uh, to make you adaptable, to be adaptable, to be flexible, uh, have a support system that allows you to pursue your, your interests and your dreams, but recognizing that you'll, you'll need help along the way. And that support system can be an academic support system, can be your friends, it can be your family, but those are all important to forge your own career starting as a graduate student and down the road to uh, provide you with, well, the necessary support you need at, at strategic times during your career. And uh, so that was another thing I learned early on from graduate school. And those factors are, are really important. Thank you so much. And before we wrap things up, I just have two more questions. What is the least favorite part for you of being a student? And then what was your favorite part about being a student? Yeah, least favorite part of being a student. Uh, I guess, oh boy. You know, I really loved graduate school. I really did. It was just an exciting time in my life. So if I had anything I didn't like about it, it was maybe I was a bit impatient. I wanted to do things faster than the timetable allowed me to do it. Uh, I learned patience eventually, but in the beginning, that was a, that was a, a limitation. I would always uh, be thinking, well, you know, another problem needs to be solved and let's get out and do it. But then I had realized that, you know, there were resources that are needed to do it. And one of those major resources was time. I mean, when you're a graduate student, uh, actually it's a plus and a minus. There is no time in my life where I was dealing with something that was focused, focused me more than when I was a graduate student. I mean, you basically have, you've got your coursework to take and your academic pursuits uh, that you need, but you're doing a research project that is your project for your dissertation. And in many cases, the rest of the world doesn't matter. You're just focused on that one project. And uh, that was great. I mean, that was a time I you know, you look back when all of a sudden you're inundated with a half a dozen different responsibilities as a faculty member. And you're thinking, oh, I remember the good old days when you only had to focus on your dissertation research. So that was a, a plus and a minus was the fact that it, uh, it you know, forced you to focus, but it also you did it at exclusion of maybe a lot of other things you would have liked to have done. I would have liked to have uh, spent more time when I was traveling, going to places other than my research site. And we did that a little bit in Peru, but I thought, well, wow, I'm here, why don't I go to Chile? Why don't I go to Argentina? Why don't I see more of Ecuador? 
And uh, those opportunities never came about, partially because you're focused on doing your research and partly because a graduate student, as many of you know, you don't have the resources to allow you to travel. So uh, I took advantage when I could of the places. And there was always something new to see. It's just that I, I always had this wanderlust that I wanted to satisfy at some point during, during graduate school and never quite could do it. So that was kind of a limitation I, I saw to, to being able to do what I wanted to do, but knowing that I had to focus on just my research. Made some good friends too. I mean, that was the other real advantage of that, that close-knit of people in my graduate cohort. People I still see today. I mean, we're unfortunately not as many of us around as there was back then, but we still uh, stay in touch, occasionally get together. Uh, that was important extra advantage of, of the graduate work that we did in, in, with a research group like the one we had. And I hope that that carried over to the students that I've worked with over the years, that we had a research group. There, there's something, you go to annual meetings, you still see your grad student colleagues and they do get together socially as well as professionally. And I think the, uh, the advantage that Cornell provides is that network is very large and extensive. It's not just my research group. And I guess if I had advice for new graduate students, it's uh, among other things, get to know that network, get plugged into that network because you will find that they are an incredible resource for not only your career development, but even for your own personal development to uh, see how, I don't know, somebody I'm sure has done a count of how many graduates came out of our PIM program, uh, but it's a phenomenal uh, number of people who uh, are all over the world, and they are going to be an incredible resource for new graduate students who are going through the program now. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jerry. This is fantastic. I wish we could go, keep going and probably do this as a multi-episode kind of a thing. Uh, I did notice that one thing didn't come up was... Um, Oh, by the way, it's more than 300 people by the, at the last time we counted. So more than 300 yeah. grads of the yeah, program. Yeah. That. Yeah. And, uh, and then the one thing that didn't come up in choosing field sites was, you know, that how there is a common thread of good tea, coffee, and chocolate across all your field sites, right? <laughs> but that, that didn't come up in how to that's pick a, a field site. That's <laughs> but, <laughs> but maybe that's a story for another yeah, that's, <laughs> time. But you're right. There yeah. are some... Uh, it's a certain perk that you look for when you do field work and uh, yeah, things like food, tea, <laughs> uh, chocolate is always a, always a good uh, a good perk for me, right? Yeah, no, this this was wonderful. Thank you so much again for your time and thank you to everyone in the audience as well. Stay tuned for more such conversations. Uh, again, thank you so much, Jerry, for joining. Thank you so much for sharing all these stories. We really appreciate it.